Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 and verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And then verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And verse 10. Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And notice this next point. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. If we turn this down, then I can put it closer to me and it might work out better. Or you just want to take it away? Okay. The first point I want to make from Daniel 12, verse 10, is that a man who knows Hebrew and other ancient biblical languages who has devoted himself to 15 or 20 years of studying those things, if that man is still a captive to his appetites and passions, he's incapable of understanding the book of Daniel. And that a man who is a plumber and has devoted his life to learning how to fix plumbing, but has a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit, if he will humbly ask God to teach him, he can understand the book of Daniel. The comprehension is a product of spirituality in Daniel 12.10 and spirituality alone. How many of the wicked will understand? It says none of the wicked will understand. This weekend, we're speaking about the spirit of prophecy. And I'm, I'm going to dare to do something tomorrow. And I think I won't regret it, but if I do, I'll find out tomorrow. I'm going to dare to take questions from the floor from anyone who has encountered an objection against Ellen White on one of those anti-Ellen White websites or from some other source and just open the floor for anyone to bring up any one of them and I'm going to try to deal with whatever comes up right here and just answer those objections. For my own purposes, this week I went to the most famous one, ellenwhite.org and I just went through every page I could in a matter of an hour to see... Is there something new, something I haven't seen, something... And I was so comforted. It's rehash of all the old stuff. And there's good answers to everything. Tonight, I want to ask a question, answer a question, though, that I asked myself. If you have a good light, say a bright light in the room, why would you need a lesser light? We talk about the lesser light that leads to the greater light. If we didn't have the greater light, it would be sensible that we could use a lesser light. But if we have a greater light, why do we need a lesser light? Do you follow the question? And I want to look at the answer to that by reminding you or telling you of two items that were called lesser lights by Ellen White before Ellen White referred to herself as the lesser light. If you look there in your handout, you'll see there A and B under number one the Old Testament and John the Baptist. Ellen White referred to the Old Testament as a lesser light that led to the, or pointed to the greater light of the New Testament. 
And she referred to John the Baptist as a lesser light that pointed to the greater light of the ministry of Jesus. Not only she, but the Bible does that. Let's look at one of those. Look with me in your Bible at John chapter 5. We're looking to see the Bible identify a lesser and greater light and then to try to approach this question, why do we need a lesser one? John 5 and verse 35. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Was John the Baptist a light? Was he a dim light or a bright light? He was a bright light, but notice verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. Was John the, brighter, the brightest light? And if I could make one point from John 5, 36 and 35, it is that a lesser light is not necessarily dim. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? That John the Baptist was a lesser light, but he was a bright and a shining light. If you remember from the Bible, the purpose of John the Baptist is clearly stated in Isaiah and by him. He was to prepare the way of the Lord. And if I could summarize the point I'm getting to, one reason that we need a lesser light is that we're not prepared for the greater light. The fact of the matter is that most of us, maybe all of us, can open up our Bible and to certain parts of it, we just don't comprehend what we are reading. But there's more than that, much more than this. How many of the wicked understand? None. And if the great light of Daniel comes, for example, to a wicked man, and he has not been led yet to repent of his sins, he will not comprehend the great light. There may be a lesser light that he needs very badly, and that's the light that will guide him to repentance. Was that the work of John the Baptist? He was a lesser light that pointed to the greater light. And there are many Adventists today that's an understatement. Laodicea characterizes our church in general as an unconverted church that has, we're naked. We understand that. We're not clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. We're not converted. If we're not converted, we're wicked. And if we're wicked, we don't understand. And if the great light was right here for us, we wouldn't get it. Why do we need a lesser light? Because the lesser light points our, out our sins. The lesser light was intended by Jesus to prepare the way of the Lord to make crooked ways straight by pointing to us our idols so we could turn away from them and get out of that category of those who can't comprehend. What's that category? The wicked. The lesser light. Yeah, you understand. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 5. John 1, verse 5. It says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He, that is John, was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. 
That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. In this verse, if you didn't have John 5, you might even say that John wasn't a light. But this verse doesn't say John wasn't a light. It says he wasn't the light. Was he a light, John 5? He was a bright and he was a shining light. But he was pointing to a greater light. What was the message of John? It wasn't only repent and turn from your sins. That was one part of it, but there was, there was something more. It was behold the Lamb of God. And many of you have an experience with the desire of ages and understand something about a need for the lesser light. It has a purpose to point us to the greater light. I'd like to give a little definition of light just for a minute. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're looking at verse 13. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. In a spiritual sense, that's just a simple definition. When we talk about a lesser light or a greater light, both of these lights are lights. And what does light do, according to Ephesians 5? It exposes, it makes manifest the things that haven't been seen. The point of the first of the three points I want to make tonight about why we need a lesser light or the purpose of the lesser light is that we need a heart preparation to receive the greater light. Some people, doubtless, accepted Jesus who never heard John the Baptist. It's not that if you don't have the lesser light, your case is hopeless. But there are many that received Jesus because of John the Baptist that would not have received him without him. And it would be a mistake to say the lesser light is not needed. We need someone to give us a heart preparation so we can receive the truth that God has for us. The second point there, it says the irony in the use of the famous lesser light statement. I did a study on this, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I was so interested by the context of that statement. Ellen White referred to six items in her ministry as the lesser light. I've mentioned two of them, and of course she was the third. One of the ones she mentioned was the moon, which is the lesser light, um, and what would be the greater light? That'd be the sun. When is it, according to Genesis 1, that the moon rules? Do you remember that in Genesis 1, that there's a time when the moon is ruling? When does it rule? In darkness. And there's something about that, when there's a lesser light and a greater light, that the lesser light is needed especially when the greater light is the most obscured. But when I found the statement where Elmer referred to herself as the lesser light, it was in an article that was written in December of some year. It didn't get published in January, but Ellen White was writing about how she was looking forward to the new year and how in this new year there should be a new emphasis in the church of getting the books that the Spirit had inspired her to write before the public. It was a call for people to enter the call porter work and have a revival of literature evangelism in the denomination. It was about how much we needed those books. 
Do you see the irony in using that statement to indicate that we don't need them? In its context, the statement was that these books, we need them so badly because they're a lesser light that points to the greater light. And to pull that statement out and to use it as if it said, since it's a lesser light, we don't really need it, is just so backwards. It's backwards in the same way that people use that other statement from the fifth volume of the Testimonies. That statement where Ellen White said that her visions were not given to give new light. And people use that statement to indicate that, or in a way to belittle anything she says that's extra biblical, because they weren't given to give new light. Let me just tell you the historical context of that statement. It doesn't require a deep degree in research to find this. You can find it in the fifth volume of the Testimonies. It's right around it. It's there. There was a man who came to church every week and couldn't stand it when people would quote Ellen White in church. Now, I will tell you, tonight we're going to have a Bible study. And I recommend that when you study things, you study them with the Bible. I think it's a great idea. Our truths are in here. However, if you study this book and conclude that Ellen White it has a true manifestation of the gift of prophecy and that you're blessed by something you read, it's not inappropriate that sometime on Sabbath in meeting that you would testify to the benefit you received from reading such and such. It's not. Anyway, this guy thought it was inappropriate. And so he began putting pressure on the church to not ever talk about Ellen White in meetings or refer to what she wrote. And he indicated that she was anti-biblical because the book of Revelation says that whoever adds anything to this book, to him will be added the plagues that are in this book. And he was making the point that her writings are an addition to the book. His point is bogus because there were several books of the Bible written after Revelation. There's the book of Revelation that we're not to add anything to. But the point of the statement in Fifth Testimonies about no new light was this idea that the Ellen White's writings are not a new test of faith. They're not a new Bible. We have the Bible as our rule of faith. And what is she saying in the context of that statement? People ought to be perfectly free to quote her in meeting and to share their testimony and to be openly in favor of what she had to say. How ironic to turn the thing on its heels. Well, that's the end of point number two. Number three. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four is such a useful chapter for so many things. And I tend to distract myself when I'm talking. And I'm tempted to do it right now. And I think I'm going to give in. It is a useful passage, for example, if you're studying with Jehovah's Witnesses. Because if you compare Ephesians 4 with Psalm 68 or 69, whichever one it's quoting in verses 8 through 11. Maybe you have a margin that tells which one it is. Is it 68, 19? Yeah, 68. In our Bibles, it's not as clear, but in the New World Translation... It's very clear in Ephesians 4 that it's speaking about Jesus. He's the one who gives gifts to men. And it's very clear in Psalm 68 that it's Jehovah that gives gifts to men. 
And if you put the verses together in their Bible, you know what it says very plainly? Jesus is Jehovah. Which is not the point for tonight at all. But it's part of one of the benefits of Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians 4, we're looking at verse 11 about the gifts that are given. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did he give some to be prophets? These are the gifts to the church. Verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why do we need a lesser light? In other words, why do we need prophets in the church when we already have the canon made up? Ephesians 4 gives some reasons. The church needs to be built up and we need to be equipped for ministry. Did God, through the ministry of Ellen White, give us any information to help equip us for ministry? I think the book Evangelism, the book Christian Service, the book Corporate Ministry, the book Publishing Ministry, the book Councils and Sabbath School Work, the book Testimonies to Ministers, and Gospel Workers, both versions. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, why do we need a lesser light? The church needs to be equipped for ministry. Where the Bible has the rule of life, and it is the bright light, it just doesn't have the kind of detail about how to sell books door to door that I can find in call point of ministry. We need some equipage. Is, is this... Something outside of the, what the Bible recommends? That was a weird way to ask. I'll just say what I'm saying. The Bible is the one that said we need the equipage. And if God gives us the equipage, it's because he said he would in the Bible, in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 13. Till we come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There is a type of unity that God intends to bring to his church and how does he work to bring us to that unity? It's by the gifts of the Spirit. What kind of unity is it? It's a unity of the faith, which contrasts sharply with the unity of the let's be quiet about our differences. Did that make any sense to you? Or is that too metaphoric? A unity of the faith is when we can see alike as opposed to when we ignore the fact that we don't see alike. For the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to bring us unto a perfect man, which is a different issue for a different time, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice verse 14. Till we all come, excuse me, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. What was one of the reasons that we need a lesser light? We have a great light, but some men that are tricky can take the great light and can find ways to twist and turn in a way that is very confusing, and God uses the gifts of his Spirit to expose their trickery. Well, anyway, that's true. And the history of our church, 
That's what I teach more than Bible topics. I teach church history. The history of our church is full of this kind of trickery. Over here on this board, which is too small for you to read, maybe for most of you, and it's not in the right place for any of you, maybe I'll pull it over, and it'll be semi in the right place for some of you. Um, What I want to do is make a case study for a minute of one particular example of trickery. There is a man named Ballinger who is more famous than he ought to be, who in 1905 came to some conclusions about the sanctuary. Ballinger is interesting because he attacked the sanctuary doctrine of Adventism on the basis of Scripture in a way that succeeded in winning many people away from our faith. Has anyone here read Ballinger? That's incredible. Not one person. I'm really surprised by that. I expected there'd be a few people here that read Ballinger. Well, maybe it's good that you didn't read him, because many people who did read him, maybe the people who did read him aren't sitting here. That could be what's going on. Um, it was a mess. What Ballinger did is he took 25 instances in the Bible where the term within the veil. And when you put within the veil and you're quoting the Bible, it's tricky because that letter is variable. Within the veil, and he showed that in those 25 instances, it's very clear, ding, 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 it's the holy place. Excuse me, that's not what I meant to say. That's not what he was showing. He was showing that it's the most holy place. You know, there's a veil in between the two apartments, and within the veil is always the most holy place. You can go through it. Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers. And then we come to Hebrews, and it says, Jesus went within the veil when he went to heaven. Now, the logic of Ballinger was very simple. These 25 passages prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that within the veil means most holy place. But that's not all. Then he takes you to a couple Old Testament prophecies that speak about the temple in heaven being active currently. And it's apparently it's the holy place that's active in the Old Testament. He shows you there. I forget now. I think it was Isaiah 56 and... And some, but truly, I'm not remembering. So this is fallible. If you read Ballinger, you'll find out what two passages they were. And if Jesus is in the temple, one we could go to that's very clear is Isaiah 6. I guess that's what I know, so we could look at that. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Isaiah 6, just so you can see it. Isaiah 6, and look at the first two verses. Isaiah 6 and the first two verses talk about how Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple, which is just a beautiful passage for showing where the throne of Jesus is, that the throne of Jesus is in the sanctuary. Isn't that clear there in Isaiah 6, 1 and 2? Well, that's the point in favor of Adventism. Well, what's the other point? It's against us. It shows that he was already in the temple long before the ascension. 
Do you follow that point too? It's a disaster. But it wasn't to Ballinger, it was just what he was looking for. So he had a few of those passages, he quotes those. And then he shows that there was forgiveness in the Old Testament. And forgiveness comes through the ministry of Jesus. Very clear, he had to be in the sanctuary during the Old Testament. I'm almost done giving you Ballinger's primary arguments. One more. Can I remember it? 25, Isaiah 6. I'll get to it. I'll go through these three, and by that time, the fourth one will come to my mind. What I'm trying to bring out is why we need the lesser light. And I want to show that it's as true today as it was when Ephesians 4 was written, that there are men who have very great skill at trickery. What did it call it in the King James? Cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive? Well, cunning describes the craftiness. And it works. If you're going to do a word study on this, be sure to look up veil and veil. If you only look up one of the spellings, you're going to miss something. There are two words translated veil in the Old Testament, two translated veil in the New Testament. A transliteration made up by someone besides me is written there. I don't want to say them because I'm afraid there might be a Greek or Hebrew scholar in here that would know I said it wrong and I would be embarrassed. So we'll go to the English words, veil, haining, veil, and veil. These correspond to Strong's numbers here. What Ballinger did is he noticed that within the veil, all of his statements were from V-A-I-L in the Old Testament, the first of that list. All those within the veils were most holy place. And in the New Testament, the within the veils are from 2665, V-E-I-L. And I'm not making a point about the spelling. It's just so you can find it. That's not my point. And he correlated the first and the fourth. Though I don't know Greek well, I have taken a little more than a year of it. And in your concordance, you can find the two words that this word comes from. The first one, kata, is a preposition that most often means something like down or in relation to. And the second half of the word comes from the Greek word for fly, like fly down. Let me help you see it in a Greek mindset. That piece of cloth there is flying down, especially if that window is an old window with no glass and the wind is coming. It's flying down. That word is a word for curtain. In the Old Testament, besides this word for veil, you have another word often used in the same passages. It's translated usually hanging. In the, those first few books of the Bible, Masik, I broke down and made up a pronunciation of it. Masik is more parallel to the New Testament veil in many ways. Two of them I wrote down here. First of all, there's a first and a second hanging in the Old Testament. The first hanging is on the door, and the second hanging is between the holy and the most holy place. Whereas the first word is used just for that curtain in between, for what we'd call the second hanging. Does Paul ever refer to 
a second veil in the book of Hebrews? Well, sure he does, but then the second veil. That would be parallel more to this word. And if you talk about within, within the hangings, that would just totally change the picture in the Old Testament. That it speaks of the first and second hangings. If you're within the first one, you're inside the holy place. If you're within the second one, you're within, inside the most holy place. And remember, hanging, hanging, the idea of the word, of the Hebrew word, is more similar to the idea of the Greek word. It is a flying down. It's a curtain. It's a hanging. I really thought that I'd think about his other objection while I was standing up here. Well, it didn't happen. But I'll make my point from the first few. Many people reading that begin to shake in their boots, his arguments, because they suddenly see, I've been wrong all my life. Within the veil really does mean the most holy place. Then Adventism is false. Then Ellen White is a false prophet. Woe is me. It's cunning craftiness. And it would really help us to have something to help us with this problem. I might read you some things she wrote to help us with this problem. I'll have them up there on the desk. I just remembered the other argument. The other argument was that he showed from numerous verses, he proved this point to the, so well that you just come away thinking it has to be true. And you know, it is. If you can prove a point very well, probably it's true. He proves that when Jesus went to heaven, that he sat at the right hand of God. Well, the right hand of God, where's that? Obviously, he said, it's the most holy place where the throne of God is. So what did he prove very well? That Jesus went to the right hand of God. What did he assume very briefly? That that is the most holy place. And that's cunning craftiness. Even if he did it sincerely. Because when Jesus comes back in the clouds of heaven, you know what the New Testament says about that? He's coming back at the right hand of the throne of the power of God. It's right there, the same idea. But that's in the clouds on the way down. It's very apparent that this right hand, there's a number of other passages like this, is a reference to a relationship to the Father. And when you ask the question, where is God's throne? That's exactly the question Ballinger asked in his little logical thing. Where is God's throne? Holy place or most holy place? That's a bad question. Because he can give some answers that show that God's throne is in the most holy place. But what about, what if God's throne was mobile? Like it says in Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 10? It's very clear that God's throne is mobile. It makes his question invalid. You understand what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe one-third of you are are interested in there, two-thirds of you are wishing I'd go to something else than talking about this stuff. But this is significant. In case someone ever hands it to you and you have to read it. You don't want to be blown over. God's throne is mobile. The right hand of, of the Father is wherever the Father happens to be. And in Revelation 8 and Revelation 5, you find the throne of Jesus in the same place as the spiritual seven candlesticks, the same place as the altar of incense. Yeah, it's just plain. 
Let me read you what Elamite wrote about Ballinger. Just a moment. I am not able to sleep past one o'clock. I was aroused to write out some things that have been impressed on my mind. Not long ago, I met Elder Ballinger in the hall of the building in which we have rooms. As I spoke to him, it came vividly to my mind that this was the man whom I had seen in an assembly bringing before those present certain subjects and placing upon passages in the Word of God a construction that could not be maintained as truth. He was gathering together a mass of scriptures such as would confuse minds because of his assertions and his misapplication of these scriptures, for the application was misleading and had not the bearing upon the subject at all, which he claimed justified his position. Listen to this next sentence. Anyone can do this, and will follow his example to testify to a false position. But it, the position, was his own. And now again, our brother Ballinger, I left out several paragraphs, is presenting theories that cannot be substantiated by the word of God. It will be one of the great evils that will come to our people to have the scriptures taken out of their true place and so interpreted as to substantiate error that contradicts the light and the testimonies that God has been giving us for the past half century. I declare in the name of the Lord that the most dangerous heresies are seeking to find entrance among us as a people. And Elder Ballinger is making spoil of his own soul. The Lord has entrusted me to come the long journey to Washington to this meeting to bear my testimony in vindication of the truth of God's word. What was the purpose of the lesser light? To bear her testimony in vindication of the truthfulness of God's word. To help separate between the Bible and the use of the Bible to teach things that aren't substantiated by the Bible. Almost done. I testify in the name of the Lord that Elder Ballinger is led by satanic agencies and spiritualistic invisible leaders. Those who have the guidance of the Holy Spirit will turn away from these seducing spirits. Let me summarize my three points from tonight. I'll start with the last one before you get tired of it, or after you got tired of it. Ballinger had cunning craftiness. He showed that within the veil means in the most holy place. But he didn't realize that it should have been translated more parallel within the curtain. And that's why it said the first, why it said the curtain and the second curtain. Because in the Old Testament there were two curtains. And it spoke of both of them and called them the first door and the second door inside the sanctuary. That's a helpful word for you, by the way, the fact that it's called the first door and the second door when you get to Revelation 3 and things like that. That's the way it is back there. But Ballinger didn't see it, or else he had help, so he didn't see it. And it's no surprise that you get help like that, because how many of the wicked will understand? None. And Ballinger qualified for the none. So he didn't understand it. Did he have help with his understanding? He had spiritualistic, satanic help. Did the devil make a plausible Bible study to lead away from the truth? It was plausible in the sense that if you didn't know about the Greek and Hebrew, 
if you didn't know about the mobile throne, if you didn't know about the holy place references for the throne, it could blow you away. I never dealt with that issue about salvation in the Old Testament. Let me just deal with that before I plant a doubt and don't solve it. If you were reading in, for example, Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, you would read about the experience of Jesus in the present tense, speaking about something that was to happen more than a thousand years later. Do you follow what I'm saying right now? Present tense, prophecy in present tense about an event that is long future. That is the natural way of prophecies. And, for example, in Isaiah 6, it looks like it's just in Isaiah's time. But what happens in Isaiah 6, you can go check this out in your own time tonight as you read through it. In Isaiah 6, it says that the whole earth has been filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It says the temple filled with smoke. It talked about coals being taken from the altar. And it talked about a message being given to Isaiah to give, but is that a hopeful message? There's no gospel in Isaiah 6 and the message Isaiah has to give. It's a message of hopelessness. And he asks, how long should I give this message? The answer is, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant. When in Revelation is the house filled with smoke? It's during the seven last plagues. When is it that coals are taken from off the altar? It's just before the beginning of the seven last plagues. When is it that the earth is filled with the glory of God? Why, that's just before the pouring out of the seven last plagues. And how long is the situation hopeless for people? Why, that's until the beginning of the thousand years when the cities are wasted without inhabitant. Isaiah 6 is a prophecy in present tense about events that even today are still future. And that is how the ministry of Jesus is foretold in the Old Testament in a number of passages, a few that Ballinger refers to. It was a future event. Jesus was not offering up his righteousness before he had shed his blood. Then how are people forgiven in the Old Testament? Romans 3 indicates a different type of forgiveness in a way before the cross than after it. Different in this respect It says that God overlooked the sins of the people until, I'm so paraphrasing Romans 3, 19 through 24, until the cross came where he could be just in forgiving those same sins. So Jesus was going to die. He forgave Abraham because he was going to die. But there was no just way he could forgive Abraham. He just did it, knowing what was going to happen, and then it became just at a later date when he began his ministry in the sanctuary after the cross. This was supposed to be a summary, but really it was a bunch of new stuff. I'll start the summary over. The summary of the third point is that cunning craftiness still exists. We need to be alerted to it. Because of the testimony of Jesus and the spirit of prophecy, I know the last deceptions in the Adventist church. I've been alerted to them already. When I see them, I can recognize there's one of them coming. I've been set for the defense of the gospel in that way. We needed that when winds of doctrine are blowing. The second point, the one right before that, was irony. It is so ironic 
to take statements about how we need the spirit of prophecy and how we ought to be free to use it and turn them on their heels as if we ought to be mum and that we don't need it anymore. In what sense? Why do we need a lesser light? That was the first point. Because none of the wicked will understand. And the lesser light does a heart work of preparation for us. Why else do we need a lesser light? Because the lesser light is full of information about ministry. It was, that was God's purpose in it, to equip the church for service. And has it been used that way? It has. And we are so equipped because of the ministry of that lesser light. We need the lesser light. Tomorrow we'll deal with people who would say the lesser light is just darkness. If any of you have objections that you think might cause me a headache tomorrow, I'd be happy for you to give them to me tonight so I can have all night to think about them. But otherwise you can just raise your hand and go for it tomorrow. Does anyone have any questions now before we close? I don't mean questions for tomorrow. I mean questions about what I said tonight. All right, let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would finish the work that you have started in us and that you would brace us and prepare us to stand through the winds of these last days. I ask that you would use the gifts of the Spirit to do what you intended, that they would prepare in our hearts a way for you, that they would make crooked things straight, that we could be ready to receive the latter rain. I depend on you to do these things and to ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.